Both open and closed seasons are coming up. November 17th will mark the end of the continuing resolution, so the government could close when the money runs out. Just a few days earlier, open season arrives. That's when federal employees choose a health insurance carrier for 2024. We get the rundown from National Active and Retired Federal Employee Association's John Hatton. And John, yeah, so a couple of things happening right there in that early part of November. A lot going on. Yeah, and so this 45-day CR, the time is ticking. You know, as we speak, there's still no House Speaker, and if there is one, then what the heck? So uh, what's your best take? What are you watching for? Well, obviously, everything's going to be dependent on what happens in the House Speaker's race and what the new Speaker decides to do in terms of their strategy. In the meantime, the Senate hopefully will be moving along with their appropriations process right before the end of the fiscal year, The House did pass a couple more appropriations bills. And because the House has to act first on appropriations, according to the House, constitutionally, according to the Senate, by tradition, the Senate was waiting for some of those bills to move. A minibus that they were going to use the Milcon VA House pass bill for and adding two more was held up by Ron Johnson. It's looking like Republicans are going to be playing ball on moving forward with these appropriations bills instead of trying to delay them. And the Senate now has these vehicles to start trying to move some of them. And so I think we're first going to see a minibus in the Senate using that Milcon VA, ag, and then transportation, the T-HUD bill. So hopefully they'll start making progress while the House figures out what it's doing with itself. And then we will still have very much uncertainty when the House comes out of the Speaker's race. But hopefully the Senate is using this time well to at least move the ball forward a little bit on that appropriations process. But I think it's really anyone's guess what will happen. I don't think the House Republican Conference itself knows who is going to be Speaker and what will happen after they do decide who the Speaker is. Right. And then I don't think the gang of eight or whatever you call them there, the uh, ultra-right gang, whatever, those people that got... Kevin McCarthy derailed, they're not going to sit by and elect someone just to do what they prevented from happening with Kevin McCarthy, just have it happen with someone else. Yeah, ostensibly. I mean, it was interesting. I think the motion to vacate itself was brought by Matt Gates, and there was at least some rumors about that being a personal gripe between Gates and McCarthy. And then you had other people that were willing to vote for that motion to vacate, even if they maybe weren't willing to put it on the floor. You know, there was issues electing McCarthy as speaker where he had there was a block of around 20 House Republicans that originally didn't vote for him for a long period of time. And so some of those people, you know, they did not vote for that motion to vacate. So, you know, on the substance of it, I think what did McCarthy do wrong putting a bill on the floor that got majority of Republican votes? I mean, it's untenable at some point if the Speaker of the House is doing what the majority of House Republicans want. And they can't operate. And well, that's the chaos we're seeing. McCarthy did what a majority of Republicans wanted. He avoided a shutdown. But there's still this, again, this chaos. So I don't know. I mean, I think what could come out of this that could be more stable is a rules change that takes away that power of that motion to vacate being used by any one or a small number of individuals. So if there is a speaker elected and a rules change that takes some power away from them, which some of the moderate or majority Republicans are calling for, that could lead to a more stable environment. But the speaker may be further to the right and pushing more for a shutdown anyway. So it's really up in the air. And the other thing is, if there is a shutdown or a continuing resolution that flows after this one into the first of the year, until that's over, no federal pay raise can go through, correct? 
No, if a continuing resolution goes through, the pay raise can still go through as long as it doesn't block it. So really, if Congress is silent, the president has the authority under statutory law to issue that pay raise. So he's issued his alternative pay plan in August. And basically, if Congress does nothing, as long as the government is funded, that will go through. Now, the continuing resolution wouldn't have budgeted amounts to cover that increase in pay, but that's up to the agencies to figure out where they're getting that money. And one thing that will continue, whether a shutdown or a continuing resolution or whatever, is federal employee health care coverage. That doesn't go away. And with open season, though, it looks like all of the choices are unpleasant with respect to the pricing, (laughs) presuming you can get the coverage you want. Yeah. So open season, again, we're seeing premiums increase. That's not different for the FEHB program. That's similar across the private sector. CalPERS, which is the California health benefits for their state and local employees, saw a 10.7% increase, where FEHB had a 5.8% for overall premiums and for enrollees, 7.7%. And that's due to the structure of how the government contributions are paid. So typically, if the popular plans are rising above the amount of the average, then you're going to see enrollees paying more than the government in terms of the increase, not on the total amount. But one way or the other, everybody's paying more than they were last year. Yeah. The premiums are going up across the board generally. I don't know 100% certain that every single plan's premiums went up, but I think with a 5.8% average increase, they probably are. Right. And so then what's your advice to members, to federal employees as they go about this? I mean, we say this every year, but (laughs) most people tend to stick with what they've got, and that's not always wise. Yeah, we always encourage people to shop for the plans to see there's a lot of good plan options out there. Some of them may be more affordable. I think going into this open season, there will be a major change in how federal retirees that are Medicare eligible are receiving or can receive prescription drug coverage. For example, on the popular Blue Cross Blue Shield plan, which covers, you know, there's 8 million participants in FEHB, about 5 million are under Blue Cross Blue Shield. If you're Medicare eligible, if you have Part A and Part B, you're going to be automatically enrolled in their kind of add-on prescription drug plan, which should help provide savings to you in terms of the receipt of your prescription health benefits. And so there are some options where you can opt out of that. The only main reason you wouldn't want that is if you're subject to higher income premiums for Part D. Those even may be offset by the savings you get by being in that. But for retirees, I really should be looking at their prescription drug coverage, how the new options work for them. And anybody really who's Medicare eligible, there's continuing to be more plans that have better coordination between Medicare and FEHB in a way that can help you save money. Right, because that Part B and Part D choice can get complicated. There's penalties if you don't do things right and so on. So the more they're coordinated, the less likely you're going to have some problem financially that pops up that you just didn't foresee. Right. The first question people often ask is, should I even take Part B? There's questions around when you should do that, whether you're still working or retired. If you wait and you had the opportunity to enroll, you're paying late enrollment penalties. Then once you have Part B, if you do take that, then what plan do you take? Or if you don't have Part B, what plan do you take? You probably want more comprehensive coverage. So we try to help our members with all that through webinars, white papers, and the like. So anybody who's looking for an extra bit of advice in open season, please uh, go to the NARF's website, see what webinars we have. You know, We have those, particularly on these Medicare-related issues, I think can be a real help because they are complicated factors. And of course, other than general inflation, which is uneven across different sectors of the economy, nobody really knows why the premiums went up as much as they did. It's not because the workforce is suddenly sicker as a whole. 
Yeah, the reasoning OPM gave was that there were changes in costs and utilization, which seems like a very obvious answer that, you know, prices went up and maybe more services were used. You know, we saw coming out of the COVID pandemic, there might have been a delay in certain outpatient surgeries. I think we would have caught up by then. Utilization of specific brand name drugs, emergency root care, and outpatient care were some of the primary drivers that OPM cited. But again, that's not super specific in terms of what exactly is driving this, other than it seems like a combination of people using more care and it costing more. Yeah, always. It costs more because it costs more. John Hatton is vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. As always, thanks so much. No problem. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance 
And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this 
particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.